Hello, I'm John Steele of Cafe Direct, and this is the Building Better Business podcast, a podcast that examines how business can and needs to be more than just making money. Unraveling how we create new business models to better serve our communities and the environment. This really is the future of how we'll do business and how we can all play a part. To celebrate the launch of our new podcast, the first 50 subscribers who review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or followers on Spotify will receive a £10 voucher to spend on delicious speciality coffee from Cafe Direct's London Fields Roastery. Just send photos of your subscription and review to podcast at cafedirect.co.uk by midnight on the 21st of November 2021. Today I'm speaking with Sophie Tranchell, former Managing Director of Fairtrade chocolate brand Divine. Sophie shares her experiences of 21 years leading a truly unique business that was set up by cocoa farmers in Ghana who still own shares in the company and have seats on the board. Sophie recollects the thrills of working for a radical business model, one that has improved the lives of cocoa farmers in West Africa and through its success has been the catalyst for change in the chocolate industry. You'll hear Sophie's views on in-house ethical certifications and excellent advice for those looking to start a purpose-driven business. And for all of us as consumers, Sophie will talk about the telltale signs for shoppers to recognise which companies are running their businesses responsibly and which are not. To start off with, just tell us a bit more about Divine, because from my point of view, you led it magnificently for 21 years. So tell us some more. That's a very nice introduction, John. I was the first uh, managing director of Divine, so I had the uh, privilege of running Divine for the last 21 years. And what's special about Divine, apart from, obviously, the really lovely chocolate... is I'm too used to product placement. So apart from that, is that the farmers who supplied the cocoa, who were organised in a cooperative in Ghana called Quapa Cocoa, voted in their AGM in 1997 to set up a chocolate company. And so in a way, we're the model along from Cafe Direct, because the the people behind Cafe Direct had set it up earlier and, and Cafe Direct had managed to establish that consumers were prepared to pay more for their coffee because they knew that farmers were going to benefit. And so then the next model along, was to see could you actually make farmers integral to the business model and so the farmers voted to set up a chocolate company and in 1998 Divine Chocolate was established in the UK was incorporated in the UK as a chocolate company where the mission of the company was to improve the livelihoods of cocoa farmers in West Africa by establishing a dynamic branded chocolate marketing company in the very valuable and mature chocolate industry in the UK. And so that was an audacious proposition. And I'm not sure if I knew then what I know now, I would have agreed to take it on. And so ignorance was definitely um, part of the reason I joined. And I think sort of passion and enthusiasm, certainly in the initial stage, got us through. It's quite important that, yeah, there is a difference, isn't it? Because Cafe Direct was very much for UK businesses and three farming cooperatives, whilst you actually... It was the farmer's choice to set up the company completely with Divine, which is is a fantastic move. Yes, it was. And they had established in 1993 in Ghana. 
And so they'd established a buying company and their own cooperative. And that sense of actually looking how could they get more of the value that they were creating than obviously owning uh, a significant share of a company in a place like Britain would enable you to try out that model. And so they initially owned 33% of the company and they had seats on the board, which means they have a say in how the company is run. They make decisions about whether you're going to distribute profit and then they obviously get a share of that profit if there is profit to distribute. But I think it's also interesting in terms of what that does in terms of how you're having a conversation in a company, because it's very different doing things for people versus doing it with people. And so the fact that the farmers had seats on the board, they had their representatives there, meant that they were really protagonists in the story. We weren't doing something for anonymous poor people in a faraway country. We were doing things with people who were coming to the board meetings. We were holding some of the board meetings in Ghana. And those people were absolutely integral to everything that we were doing. And we were accountable to them so that they, you know, in the end, they were my boss. I had to be called to account by the board of which they were a part of it. When you started and, you know, took on this role to be, you know, the first managing director of a different way of doing business, how did it feel to start like that? I think it was really exciting, actually. I mean, I think it would have been scary if I'd known more, but it was exciting because chocolates are something that makes everybody smile. So most people like chocolate. And even if you don't like eating it, you sort of know that it's a good and positive thing. And so the idea of running a chocolate company, which had a brand called Divine, I mean, so Divine's a gift of a brand because, of course, it's obviously going to be fabulous chocolate if it's called Divine. And so that sense that you were actually going to offer people in Britain a product that was going to be making farmers' lives better while giving them such a fantastic product was such a good way to test the idea. Because if you'd tested it with a widget, it wouldn't have had the engagement it had. So that sense that whoever you phoned up to have a meeting with or whether you wanted to go into schools and talk to people or whether you wanted to go into churches or whether you wanted you know, to talk to the chocolate industry, everybody was excited about the idea of a chocolate company that was called Divine, that had fantastic flavoured products and had a farmer's organisation directly you know, linked to it so that when horrible things happened like child labour was exposed, we were actually able to give the farmers a platform to talk about the issues themselves. And so it was it was enormously satisfying and everything I'd sort of believed in because when I was younger, I had done a lot of campaigning in things like anti-apartheid. In anti-apartheid, we recognised that the products and services you buy support the way the world works and so that you could be buying the products of apartheid and therefore supporting an apartheid system or you could boycott them. And so the mechanism we used was to boycott them. But that sense of when apartheid finished, how would we like to trade with Africa, with South Africa, which would support the way the way we'd like the world to be? Then this was a real chance to put those ideas into action. And, you know, who gets that chance? It's just an amazing chance. <laughs> I mean, over the, the, the 21 years, Divine will have had a huge amount of impact for producers. Talk a little bit about how that's manifest itself over the years. I think there's lots of different impacts. I think the first one would be that actually we put farmers into the story. So if you think about 20 years ago, if you ask somebody, where does chocolate come from? One, they'd go, who is that crazy lady and why is she asking that question? (laughs) But the other thing is that they had no idea. They sort of thought about maybe, you know, the the men in Belgium who are swirling the cocoa. Or they might have thought about the factories in Birmingham where Cadbury's was made. But they didn't at all think about the farmers who grew cocoa 
And they had no idea that it was coming, you know, mainly from West Africa. So I think we've sort of changed the story about chocolate so that people think about the farmers. So I think putting farmers in the story is probably the biggest thing we've achieved. But in terms of the benefits that owning a chocolate company that was paying a fair trade price delivered, initially we did some very nice projects where we supported the education about cooperative principles and values. And I think that that was very important because, you know, democracy is something that you have to cultivate, you have to tender, you have to look after it. And so helping the farmers to all understand what cooperative principles and values were and that they had the right to call their leaders to account is a really fundamental thing in making Quapa Coco a success and making fair trade work. Because if people don't call their leaders to account, then the whole thing doesn't work. The business model for Divine is that in on top of paying a fair trade price and premium for all of the cocoa and sugar that we purchased, we also invested 2% of our turnover in producer support and development projects, which were co-created by farmers. So initially that money went into those sorts of things. And I think one of the very nice tools we used, which you've now carried on doing with your producers direct, are radio programs, because radio programs are a really great way to reach out to a membership that's in you know remote and rural places that isn't terribly literate because they can listen to it and then they can have a conversation about what they heard. And certainly the radio programs where you had phone-ins were really fantastic because you could really see that people were engaging because they were you know, criticising the programme, they were questioning the programme, they were saying how could they join and so I think the radio programmes were a really good thing. But I think then the final thing that I would say, I mean I think there's been masses of impacts of, of Divine, is about women's empowerment and so Copper Coco were always committed to women's empowerment and when they established back in 1993 they set up the organisation with quotas and so that when they were electing their committee at a village level there had to be two women on every executive that had five people on it and when they selected their delegates for the AGM, they had two people so that one person had to be a woman. And so when you went to their AGM, they were these amazing, you know, vibrant events where nearly half the people at them was women because of that quota system. So the quota system was was important. And then the extra money that they were getting from Divine, they were able to invest in things like women's groups, which supported and helped build women's confidence and helped give them other skills that they could earn alternative income generation schemes. Later on, what we found was that although there were an enormous amount of women in membership, they weren't necessarily managing to get through the hierarchy of the organisation. And one of the barriers to that was illiteracy. And so we also worked with Quapa to develop some really intensive literacy and numeracy programmes, which where they were doing two hours, three times a week in the off season, so not during the harvest. And they were doing that in their villages. And that was amazing to see how empowering becoming literate is. Just, you know, I think it's very difficult for us who've been literate all our lives to imagine how disempowering being illiterate is. You know, you can't read where the bus is going. You can't see what the piece of medicine's for. You can't, you know, and how would you trust it? Would you take a piece of medicine where you couldn't read the packaging? And so there's a sort of sense that it's empowering in a really straightforward way. But also in a cooperative, it's very important because you need to be able to, you know, write minutes of meetings. You need to be able to record how much cocoa people are delivering. People need to trust that you can do that in a reliable way. So they were very imp important things. And all of those interventions and those commitments meant that Quapa Coco now has 35% women. It has, you know, more than 100,000 members. And it means that it over-indexes in women 
as cocoa farmers in Ghana. So there are less than 35% of the cocoa farms in Ghana are owned by women. So I think that's a real achievement. And in 2010, they elected their first woman president. And that meant that they'd elected a woman president of an organization that had 70,000 members, was turning over 50,000 tons of cocoa. That's, you know, that's more than a $100 million business that this woman has been elected to run. And so I think that is how you get change to happen is that you actually, you know, you do it and you show that it's possible. The impact that Divine has made within its community has been really, you know, incredible. But after Divine was set up, there there was a moment in time when Cabri moved into fair trade and made made a shift in its approach. How did it feel when Cabri became fair trade certified and, and how do you feel generally about the view on, you know, some of these other companies and how they are changing and perhaps need to change further? I think when Cadbury's converted to fair trade, we had to say that was a success because that was what we set out to do. You know, if you'd done your business plan back in 2000, you wanted to change the way the industry worked for the benefit of cocoa farmers. And so the fact that, you know, the most iconic brand in Britain, Cadbury's Dairy Milk, converted to fair trade was enormously satisfying, particularly to me as a campaigner. And the benefits it brought to farmers this because of the scale that they operate in was amazing. But as a person running a company, it was in it, it was enormously challenging because we were the fair trade chocolate brand. When you know groups of people around the country got their councils to pay, pass fair trade policy and got them to stock fair trade in their canteens and their vending machines and get local shops to stock fair trade, Divine was the answer. Once Cadbury's converted to fair trade. Divine was no longer the answer. So that was enormously challenging commercially, but it was exactly what we wanted to do. And so we we um, completely you know, supported that conversion. And I think that in a way we enabled that conversion because the fact that we had supported Quapacoco to become a big and successful farmers cooperative that had the scale that could supply companies like Cadbury's was really satisfying too. And so the fact that the farmers were benefiting from that was was really good. I think what's been complicated, it, it, you know, you've then seen other big chocolate companies convert iconic brands, things like Kit Kat, things like Maltesers, which again was hugely satisfying and meant that consumers all around, you know, chocolate lovers all over Britain could now buy fair trade products because everywhere they went, there was a fair trade product. I think what's been sad is what is to see, you know, 10 years after that, because that was back in 2010, actually most of them are pulling away from that. So Cadbury's came away from fair trade and set up their own social programme. And I think there is a real problem with that, because I think that we do need to have schemes which are independently verified. I think, you know, I think Cadbury setting up a scheme which they then look at themselves is them marking their own homework. And that's very complicated because although, you know, it obviously has some good impacts, over time those impacts probably dwindle because they're not the most important things to the company. And because they aren't being externally audited, it's easy for there to be that drift. And so I think as, as you know, consumer citizens, uh, you know, we need independent schemes, we need independent audits in order for us to be able to make meaningful choices about the goods and services that we buy. I mean, Divine was one of the first B Corps in the UK as well. And it strikes me that that's a good build in terms of certifying the whole of the organisation as well. How did moving into the B Corps movement come about? And how does that feel? 
so obviously, having done anti-apartheid, I'm very interested in how you as a consumer can use the power in your pocket, how you can use your money to create the world the way you'd like it to be. And so that what fair trade did was it certified a product. So it was saying that this product has been sourced using using ingredients where the people who grew the primary commodities were paid properly and treated properly. That didn't say anything about the companies. And in a way, that was particularly noticeable when you had those big corporations convert to fair trade. So when Cadbury's converted to fair trade, they you know just after that they got bought by Mondelez. And were they the biggest tax avoider in Britain? You know, were they using supply chains that were actually part of land grabs and monocultures? You know, was the way they treated their staff in the UK great? You know, did they did they actually renege on their deals to keep factories open and pay people properly in the UK? And so I think that what fair trade did, and it sort of is a 20th century certification scheme, is it certified a product Whereas B Corp actually offered consumers a way of looking at the whole way a company works. So it looks at how you treat your workers. It looks at what your environmental impact is. It looks at how you engage with the community. And it enables consumers to assess everything that a company does. And I think, you know, it's, it, it isn't doing it perfectly. It's the first go at it. And it's a big job to do. But I think it's, it's, it's the way to go. And I think it's what the 21st century needs. Trying to bring that to life for, for me, struggling in front of a supermarket shelf, trying to decide which chocolate I'm going to enjoy. How as a customer should I make those kind of choices? What are the kind of reassuring um, either certifications or labels or just things about a company that could help me decide in that moment? I mean, obviously, you know, I believe in fair trade. I'm, I'm the chair of Fair Trade London still. <laughs> and, and I think that fair trade is, I suppose it's like the Ron Sealer certificates. It does what it says on the tin, you know, is that it's the, it's the scheme that was set up to guarantee a fair deal for the growers of the primary commodities. And if you pay people properly, then they can improve their own livelihoods. They can invest in their communities. Hopefully they can adapt to the challenges of the climate crisis and climate change, you know, and hopefully they can employ people properly. And so to me, that is very important. And fair trade is really the only scheme that's offering you that as a consumer. And it is an independent audit. So, you know, Cafe Direct and Divine both make quarterly declarations to the Fair Trade Foundation. Then they come and audit our books on an annual basis to check that we are, you know, paying the right amount for all of the products that we're buying. And then they they go and visit the farmers and they actually see that that money is arriving with the farmers and that the farmers are making democratic decisions about how they're using that money and that they're effectively implementing those decisions. That is reassuring as a consumer. And so I think you still do need to look for the fair trade mark. But I think things like B Corp, which you can also see on people's labels, offer you the ability to log on to B Corp's website and actually see how companies are doing in terms of how they work with their employees in the UK, what their environmental strategy is and how they're doing on delivering on it. And I think over time that that window that B Corp is offering will get better and more informative. So I think people can log on to those things too. But in the end, it's got to be great products as well. And you've got to want to buy them and you've got to share them with your friends and things. You're always going to make your decision about the flavours too. But I think it would be great that people took into consideration, you know, how the people were treated that were supplying the essential ingredients and also how the companies are you know, what world the companies are helping to create. 
I feel that consumers are more and more wanting to make a positive change. And I think, you know, I think the pandemic um, is making people shine a, a light on their values and what, what they really want to do. To all of us, what's your advice to just people who want to make a positive change? What are the one or two things that they could do to make a difference? Well, I mean, I think you need to carefully consider this, the goods and services you want to buy and look at the sorts of world you want to create by by buying those products. I think in the end, we have to consume less and consume better. That sense of reusing things and feeling as if they're special. I had a lovely conversation in the pharmacist where I was wearing this shirt and I said to the lady I'd got it, for, she, li- she liked it and I said I'd got it from Oxfam. And she said, it's so nice when you buy, this was a young woman, it's so nice when you buy something from Oxfam because it's already got a history. You know, that's such a new idea where you're not going, ugh, horrible old smelly clothes. <laughs> You're actually going, this is something that's come from somewhere and is, you know, having a positive impact on the world. So I think of thinking about ways where we can be uh, supporting people in our local communities, which I think the pandemic has really done, supporting independent businesses that employ people properly and create jobs that are satisfying. So they're not just, you know, monotonous, tedious jobs where you're being told to do something that nobody in their right mind would want to do. And so I think it's it's about going out of your way to support local businesses, to support small businesses, to inquire into how businesses work. But also democracy does only work if we all participate. So we do need to set aside some time to invest in joining in in our local communities and also educating our children to have those same expectations, I think. Running an organisation for 21 years in a, in a world that has been changing and you know driving that business forward... Just touch maybe on one of the the biggest challenges you face doing that and maybe also one of the most incredible moments as well to give it a bit of balance. Well, over 20 years, obviously, you have a lot of ups and downs. I think the biggest one, which was the biggest shock, was the financial crisis in 2008. The reality of running a small business is that we were manufacturing our chocolate in Europe which means that we were paying for it in euros and then we were selling it in pounds and then in dollars in America. So we were completely exposed on the exchange rate. And over that Christmas in 2008, you know, when we came back in 2009, we'd basically lost our margin. So we'd lost the money we make out of every product we sold. And I think the knock-on effect of that as a small business is that you need to then put your prices up in order to get your margin back But because you're only a small business, you can't get those price rises through the retailers. And in Britain, I think probably more than certainly in America, but probably other countries, the big retailers own so much of the market. And so they're so powerful that they've got a sort of stranglehold on it. And so that if you aren't, if you don't have your products on the shelves of the big and leading supermarkets, then it's very difficult to get the volume that you need to make your business work. And so that was an enormously stressful time because you had to take a decision of would you carry on selling products virtually at a loss or would you be prepared to lose the listing? And in the end, we had to lose listings and we had to you know, realign our price and our proposition and then come back. And that was really difficult to do. And if we hadn't been 10 years old at that point, we wouldn't have survived it. And that was in, you know, on a personal level. It was so stressful to think, you know, you'd worked so hard to get into places like Sainsbury's and Tesco's. And then you were having to come out of them in order to survive. And that was an enormously stressful time. 
so I think that would be the downside. And I think it a bit repeated itself when you got to the Brexit vote, because the impact of the Brexit re- referendum was the same impact on our currency. It devalued the pound against the euro. Obviously, we had some policies in place which enabled us to deal with that by then. And we had some, you know, some forward contracting going on. But it was the same sort of stress. So they were the the difficult things and things you'd like to avoid having to do again. <laughs> I think the satisfying things were all things doing things with farmers. And so it was it was fantastic when we delivered the first profit check to the farmers and we took it as a big check and we delivered it to the AGM. And it was certainly something that nobody thought we'd managed to do. So when we sat set up back in 1998 and we said, you know, we were going to actually get the farmers to have a share of the profit in a chocolate company from the UK. Everybody was like, well, that's a very nice idea, but you know, aren't they silly? <laughs> That'll never happen. And so that was enormously satisfying. But on a personal level, I think one of my most satisfying trips was when we um, set up Divine in America. And so we did, we had a launch event on Valentine's Day in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. And I travelled to Washington with Comfort Kumia, who was a 55-year-old cocoa farmer. And she was a a grandma already. And uh, we went there and we woke up on Valentine's Day and the snow was like a foot deep. So we had to walk through the snow for us to do a briefing on Capitol Hill where we got, you know, researchers from from the Capitol building and from the senators and governors and things to come. And Comfort spoke to the meeting and she was launching her chocolate company. She was speaking about the company that she owned and uh, she got her picture on the front page of the Washington Times. And that's a life-changing experience. So when she went back and she talks to her, you know, the people in her community and she talks to her children and her grandchildren, it changes what's possible. It changes what you imagine you can achieve and I think that was enormously satisfying. Building a little bit on that but um, I guess coming back to Divine is a business with purpose in the same way as Cafe Directors whenever I get out and talk to social enterprises or listen to social enterprise it's getting that balance right that is a, is a really difficult trick I think it's it's how you maintain that solidity about delivering your mission but also create a business that can be a sustainable business from a, from a financial point of view. How do you get that balance right? What's a, what's a kind of top tip for a, a social entrepreneur trying to make sure they get the, the mission delivered in all the ways that they want it to do, but to make sure that they also have a strong enough business? I think that one of the things that's worth investing is in is to really articulate your mission well. So actually work with everybody so that you articulate it in a way that everybody can understand what it is that you're about and why you're doing it. And I think that when you start and you haven't got a lot of resources, you maybe don't invest in that. And so I think that that's a really important thing to do. Because if you've done that work early on to establish what it is and everybody it it then affects what you choose to do and what you choose not to do and who you choose to work with. And that includes your investors, because I think you do need to make sure that your investors, you know, hopefully are patient investors and that they share your values and are aligned with your mission. And I think if those things aren't aligned, you're going to have trouble going forward. I also would say to build the mechanisms that deliver your social impact at the beginning. So I think there is a tendency where you think, well, look, we've got to make this company get to a break even. We've, we've got to make it work and then we'll do the good things. So once we've made it profitable, then we'll do something good. And the problem of doing that is once you get to profitability, 
you know, what have you done to get there? Who are the people now at the table? And are they prepared to lose some of the power or money that they're getting out of you being a successful business? So that when Divine started, you know, it was committed to buying everything that it could do, fair trade. So that includes things like the nuts that we were using and the vanilla that we were using. But we were also investing 2% of our turnover, that's the top line, in producer support and development programs. And if we hadn't done those mechanisms from the beginning, I think that once we were profitable and the shareholders could see what sort of incomes they could get, it would have been a much more difficult thing to get them to agree to do. And so I think it's important to build those things in from the beginning, because when you're small, they're quite small commitments. And as you get bigger, they're bigger commitments. And that's that's how it should be. Going back to... Yeah, diversity and it, it, its fundamental importance. Divine is is a very diverse and kind of community. But how does that work at at a at a kind of board level? I mean, how how do you see the advantages of having diverse representation on a board as well? I think that having a more diverse range of people around the table makes a for a more robust conversation and a more resilient plan. So I think that you end up that you have considered more of the opportunities and more of the problems and you've resolved those things in the process of coming up with a plan. I do also think it changes the way you talk about each other. So I think that if you're all in the room, then you can't talk about each other in a sort of patronising, anonymous way. And so that sense of, you know, if farmers are at the table and they're protagonists, you're not going to talk about them as, you know, as a sort of hopeless group of people who need your help. You're going to actually talk about each other in a more respectful way. You're going to find a way to talk about each other. And so I think uh, that's becoming increasingly important. I think that the way that we have um, as a society, so not only in boards, but as a society, we've stopped being able to have dialogue in a civil way. We ought to be able to disagree and have a conversation and come to a conclusion, you know, and some compromise <laughs> and, you know, and, and agree to do things together and agree to differ. And I think that if you don't have different people around the table, you're unaware that there are a different points of view and you're unaware that the impact that you're having might have some negative consequences on people who are particularly far away from you, which you can't see those impacts. Over 21 years with Divine, is it's fantastic and it's fabulous. And just to hear the way you feel about it and the way you feel about what you've achieved is wonderful. Now that you've finished being with Divine, what would be your advice to Divine for it to flourish and deliver over the next 20 years? I think my advice to Divine would be to remember that the product has to be fabulous. I mean, so in the end, I think, you know, Divine's a fantastic brand. Chocolate is the gift of a product to do social engagement. Uh, and so you need to continue to deliver really, really fabulous products. But I also think probably the thing I learned is you need to recognise that things change over time and not try and arrest them at a moment. And so to embrace change and make it work for all of the partners in, in, in the company is important. You know, so technology is incredibly different now to what it was 20 years ago. So that sense of actually using technology to create positive feedback loops where you could use a sort of Uber model to put the company's objectives out there and farmers could feedback and say whether they thought you were delivering on them and so could consumers and you could sort of really create positive feedback loops and you, you embrace technology to do that as opposed to 
sort of continuing to do what you were doing 20 years ago and working in a, what becomes an increasingly old-fashioned way, which then doesn't necessarily fulfil all the partners' um, ob- changing objectives in a way. So I, I think you know, embracing change and seeing how you can make it work for everybody, I think would be one of the things I'd say to Divine. After two decades with Divine, what are you going to do next? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm certainly enjoying myself having some more time to myself, <laughs> although it's been a very funny time to do that during a, a world pandemic. And so I've been very frustrated not to be able to see more of people and to see more of my family and friends and, and people like you, John. Uh, you're one of the few people I've actually had lunch with. So I think there's things like that. I'd like to see if there was an opportunity to convene industry to actually deliver step change. And so one of my frustrations, which we didn't get to, was actually convening the chocolate industry to see what you know big difference could we make. Because I think that Cafe Direct set out in the coffee industry and Divine set out in the cocoa industry to create step change. We wanted to do business differently, to do business better, to raise the bar in terms of how business is done. And yet 20 years on, farmers are still living in a terrible circumstances. They're now more prone to the climate crisis. They're living in areas where they're much more likely to get hit by floods and droughts than we are. And they're not having, they're not in a better position to challenge those those things. And so I think it would be really interesting to see if we could convene various industries and use things like that sustainable development goals to bring together you know producers of the products and consumers of the products i.e citizen consumers but governments too to see whether we can actually improve the livelihoods of people in the global south so whether that be coffee farmers in south america or cocoa farmers in west africa or tea farmers in you know in, in india what, what is it that we can do because there's a real common uh, problem there where despite everything the share of value they're getting for the products that we're selling on the shelf it's significantly gone down over the last 30 years the share of the value they're getting and that can't be right so while we're all saying we want them to have a fairer deal and we you know have lots and lots of documentaries about how awful it is what's going on in these countries we're taking you know our the companies that are based in the global north you know the retailers and the brands are taking a bigger share of the value than they did 30 years ago and so i think we're going to have to have a real serious conversation about that and i think part of how we're going to do that is we're going to have to have some more transparency about who pays what for what so that we can have a informed and sensible conversation about it and consumers in the end can make decisions about how they spend their money and what products they want to buy and how they'd like the world to be. Wonderful talking with Sophie there. Big thanks to her for sharing her experience with us. As ever, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen as it really does help. It's great to see all your lovely reviews too. Thank you. Bye for now.